Holy Pew podcast brought to you by Protestia.com. Thank you so much for listening. This program is brought to you by our intrepid patron supporters who for only $5.95 a month can support this ministry on a financial level by going over to patreon.com forward slash Protestia. There are other levels of support, but $5.95 a month will get you access to the Patreon feed, which gets you uh, Protestia Tonight, the full version, the PTVIP as well, um, as well as um, other exclusive content and things like that. I know that folks that support this ministry on a financial level do not do it for the exclusive content, but we try to honor the uh, your support and um, your sacrifice. There, are, there are other places that money could be spent, and we um, feel humbled and blessed that you spend it with us. And now you're spending um, the next, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes or so driving with me across um, the Denver metropolitan area. This uh, looks... It should be sunny today. It feels like it should be sunny, but it's not. It's kind of overcast. Um, weather is pretty, um, but it, but it's comfortable outside. It's comfortable outside. I am uh, wearing shorts for the first few times this year. Um, I don't know how many listeners come from climates like Colorado. Probably none. I mean, it's very. It's a. It's a kind of a rare climate over here in terms of the altitude and the dryness and all of that. Um, but certainly, those of us that live in places in the United States where there are four distinct seasons will understand what I'm talking about. That crossover period between between winter and spring, where we start um, uh, pulling out the the summer clothes and we start dewinterizing the house and, and all these other things and, and whatnot. That is that's the time of the year that we're in right now, the after Easter time, um, and. Uh, an interesting article. This is what we're going to discuss, and this is a this is a sub a subject matter that is not only near and dear to my heart, but near and dear to my area of expertise. So I hope you'll bear with me as I we I might get into some some minutia and some technicalities and things like that that they, they they might cause your eyes to gloss over a little bit if you are not familiar with what I'm talking about. I'll try to explain it in a way where everybody understands. Um, what I'm, what I'm discussing specifically is worship music, CCM, contemporary Christian music. And we, we released an article at Protestia that, that pointed to some research that had been recently done and noted, noted that for the past 10 years, 2010 through 2020, pretty much all of the top worship songs, when I say the top worship songs, the ones that have been the most popular and of course it's music so we can actually track this with metrics but the songs that have been the most popular have all come from the same um you know worship church uh groups so so we we've all noticed that um in the in the modern you know in the in the present day i keep saying modern on podcasts and i don't i don't want anybody to think that i'm talking about modernity as a as a philosophical construct um but instead just you know the the last decade or so, we've all noticed that there's been a precipitous shift in the the industry, as it were, the praise and worship industry, the Christian music industry, away from you know album music and and you know something that Stephen Curtis Chapman would put out or or whatever, uh, you know Jars of Clay or DC Talk or all these sort of these 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 groups and these artists that were around when I grew up. There's been a precipitous shift away from that towards church, you know, sort of mega church ministry based worship bands and collectives and projects and things like that. And they have 
dominated the now diminished charts of Christian music. I say diminished because the entire music industry has undergone a seismic shift in in the wake of the internet and the information age and the change in distribution that that's brought about. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago when you had to go to the store to buy the music, to buy the recorded music that you wanted to listen to. You know, I mean, obviously, you could listen on the radio and things like that. You could listen to other public playing of those songs in, you know, in stores or things like that or whatever. You could hear songs other places. But if you wanted to listen to it on demand, if you wanted to listen to a song when you wanted to listen to the song, you had to go to the store and you had to buy a physical reproduction of that song, whether it was a, an LP, like, you know, a, a record or then cassette tapes or then CDs. And about roughly 10 years ago, people were still buying CDs and then putting those CDs in their computers to create digital copies, you know, MP3s or um, AAC files or whatever to put on their personal devices. Um, But then along came streaming, along came um, Spotify and, uh, you know, now Amazon Music and YouTube Music and Tidal and, I mean, there's, you know, Deezer. I mean, there's a hundred places now you can stream music and you can can pay a, a usually... I mean, very small monthly fee to more or less have access to, you know, obviously, as much music as you could possibly listen to, because people don't have that much time, but also kind of whatever music you want to listen to on demand. So effectively, it's like it's like you went out and bought um, millions of CDs. You went out and bought millions of albums because you can listen to this stuff anytime you want, anywhere you want. And obviously the, that, that created a shift in the music industry overall. That created a shift away from revenue coming from, coming from recorded music. You know, some of us, some of us are old enough to remember when Napster was a thing and people were downloading, they were, they were sharing downloaded music on Napster and other similar peer-to-peer networks for free. And we remember Lars Ulrich, the drummer from Metallica, um, complaining about that, and and they, Metallica sued Napster, and basically we were able to destroy that company, that that um, that streaming service. But the bell had been rung. Once people realized how much easier and more convenient and better it was for the for the consumer to just be able to stream whatever they want whenever they want, um, or or download it whenever they want. For it used to be ninety nine cents a song, then it was one twenty nine a song. But again, you could just buy stuff on demand. You didn't need to buy whole albums. Um, you didn't have to drop twelve ninety nine or thirteen ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine on a CD to get the two songs you really liked and ten songs you really didn't care about. Now you could just go. You just go make playlists now of the ones you want. You could either buy them as singles um, anywhere from the album, or you could just put them now. Nowadays, of course, we just put our favorite songs on playlists. And even more than that, now the programs themselves make playlists for us. So. Um, but to, to, I mean, to, to wrap that up, the music industry changed dramatically from revenue being um, coming from recorded music to revenue having to come from other places. Um, streaming royalties are next to nothing compared to album what album sales used to bring, and it wasn't uncommon back um, 20 years ago, you know, um, kind of turn turn of the millennium, for a uh, you know the most popular artists out there to release records and they're selling a million a million albums in the first week um you know some of the biggest names were selling five six seven million albums in a week when their stuff came out 
nowadays the, the the biggest splashes you ever see for album sales are in the hundreds of thousands it's much 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 less because people just stream it instead and they're unwilling to because because now the customer has become unwilling to actually buy buy albums um artists and record labels and, and you know music companies and things have had to adjust to that they can't they can't force customers to get music in a way they don't want to and there's plenty of music out there and of course to make matters worse and this is going to come into play when we start talking about ccm to make matters worse uh for the companies um they you you can always go listen to old music you never have to listen to what's new so for for every minute of the day that you're that you're spending you know listening to uh k-love or the latest you know the latest worship song out there the latest christian song or even the latest secular song you could be listening to older stuff you could be listening to a chicago album from the 70s if you want to you could be listening to um tears for fears i mean whatever whoever right you could be listening to anything that's old um and now all of a sudden and 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 the reason i mention that is because what it, it has an effect of devaluing in in effect devaluing everything that comes after it because everything every every piece of recorded art like music like movies like books i mean you name it anything that's put down is coming into a marketplace that is saturated 100% saturated there is there i mean you could read there there could be nothing new released ever again and of course any individual is still not going to be able to read or listen or watch it all listen to or watch it all obviously and so so because of this record companies music uh, acts and things like that have had had to turn to experience and novelty and and um one time experience you know expiring experience um you know things things that you would that would be one of a kind they have to turn to marketing things and and selling things and producing things that way rather than enduring things that can last um that's the only way that revenue will be generated at this point because music music customers are not buying the format that lasts instead they are hooked on um, the format that is expiring, you know, they, they, they're hooked on novelty. They're hooked on seeing the next new thing as fast as possible. And music companies know that when they re- now when they release a song, if that song does not hit in a, at a very popular level very quickly, uh, it's basically over. Very rare is it that, a, that an artist puts out a song that people are not really into um, and then later it takes on a life of its own because guess what people are people are already hooked to the next new thing um, they're, they're already hooked to the next new thing um, by the time that that song would be gaining some sort of la- later popularity and the same is true in Christian praise and worship music so a lot of us have noticed in in CCM that it seems like we hear you know what are more or less the same songs over and over and over um, I'm going to use I'm going to use a song as an example here, just off the top of my head, um, because it's one that I've heard a lot lately. I saw this artist play it on on Fox News. I saw, um, you know, the music videos. I, I I saw a lot of churches do this song on Easter Sunday, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to throw this this artist under the bus. I'm not trying to throw any of the churches that have played this song under the bus, but it is a it's it's a great example of exactly what I'm talking about. 
um, the song is uh, This Is Our God, I believe it's called, by Phil Wickham. Some of you know who Phil Wickham is. Uh, he's been on the CCM scene for um, quite a while now and wasn't really quite a known artist and a known name up until, I don't know, the last five years maybe, five, six, seven years when people started recognizing, oh, it's Phil Wickham. But much like secular artists, they, they do some songwriting and arranging and, and collaboration and stuff like that um, behind the scenes prior to people knowing who they are. Uh, Phil Wickham is kind of in that in that same category as far as now, now people know who he is. He's become he's become a name in and of himself as an artist. Um, you know, so, some names that come to mind like that are like Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars. These kind of acts um, have, have done a lot of songwriting, a lot of arranging, a lot of um, production work and things like that. They they did a lot of that work before anybody knew who they were as artists. And Phil Wickham's kind of in that category. But he collaborates with with Bethel. He's got stuff that's that's released under Bethel Publishing. He's got stuff that's released with Elevation Publishing. Um, and 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 now he's now he's sort of coming to his own. Is oh okay, people know who Phil Wickham is. Um, he's making a push right now to be Phil Wickham rather than be you know sort of the unknown songwriter um, out of the four songwriters that it somehow takes to write a CCM song. Um, and and he's, he released this song. Um, definitely to coincide with Easter, I would say, but he released a song, This Is Our God, that, um, that some of you might have heard. And I remember when I, when I first heard the song, and then I noticed on the writing credits, okay, this is being released by Elevation Publishing, so of course, Stephen Furtick will somehow become a songwriter on this song. Because that's and, and that's the, the uh, one of the little secrets with elevation worship is that if you're going to release a song, and elevation is going to make their own recording of it, and their publishing arm is going to publish it for you, and they're, they're going to put their industry might behind uh, pushing your song. Stephen Furtick is going to somehow be, be a songwriter on that song. It's the same way in the movie business when you see somebody is given a a, a credit as an executive producer, and they really didn't do anything to produce the actual movie itself particularly, but for, for whatever reason, for what, whatever industry reason, uh, whatever favor needs to be doled out at that point, they're, they're um, listed as an executive producer, padding their resume. It's not much different with Stephen Furtick. He, he winds up as a songwriter on a lot of songs, and I'm um, pretty convinced he had little to nothing to do with their actual creation. But it's sort of, it's, it's the unspoken, unwritten rule of um, having your song being pushed by the elevation worship machine um and so Stephen Furtick is on he is a songwriter of this song at least officially whether like I said whether he had anything to do with its creation or not is beside the point um but this I remember I I heard this song and I said okay this is this is another by the numbers CCM song but but I remember saying to a few friends I said this is is it possible that Stephen Furtick just went to chat GPT and said um write me a Phil Wickham song and this is what came out because the song sounds just like um just like there's joy in the house of the lord just I mean all those all the Phil Wickham songs that you've heard um you know battle belongs all these Phil Wickham songs that you've probably heard sung especially if you're in a Baptist church if you're in an SBC church non-denominational church and you have a contemporary worship band on Sunday morning you've likely heard one or all of these songs but the truth is that you could probably put the songs on top of each other and play them together and they would just mash up to be the same song. It's that, they're that similar, they're that formulaic. And the reason that they become this similar and formulaic, it, it's, it's twofold. 
um, one, the novel, the, the desire for novelty among music consumers, and that's you know music consumers whether it's you know people that listen to K Love and actually want to put this stuff on their playlists on their favorite streaming service uh, or whatever, or it's people in churches that want to sing and 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 have musical worship that is f- either familiar or uh, pleasing to them. E- either way, the they're they're hooked on novelty. They're hooked on novelty, and so it's not it's not necessarily about an enduring, um, you know, a song that's going to endure for the ages in terms of its, its artistic value to Christianity, its artistic value to the church. It's not really about that. It's about, um, getting that next emotional fix. And then we can sort of throw it away and, and grab the next song and the next emotional fix. And this works not not only is this what the human heart wants, and especially in the information social media age where, you know, the TikTok age, where it's like if you haven't grabbed their attention in 2.3 seconds, they're on to the next thing. Um, you know, people have been trained now to, to uh, be addicted to novelty in this way. It's not just about that, but it's also the industry itself that's addicted to novelty because they know you're not buying the album. Not, and so unless, unless they hit with a lot of popularity and most especially unless they can get that song into a lot of churches around the country, it's not worth doing. So the goal is not to create enduring art. The goal is not to create something that is, you know, that is beautiful and true and deep in its own right. The goal is to get something that, that will keep the gears of the industry churning. And there is a, a, a very special niche in Christianity that just doesn't exist in the secular music industry. And by and, and it's 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 called CCLI. Um, CCLI is the the licensing. It's Christian Copyright Licensing. I don't remember exactly what it stands for, but it's 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 the licensing firm that churches go to to secure the rights to use worship songs in their corporate worship services on Sunday. Some of you, if, if you use um, you know screens or projectors or things on Sunday morning. Um, and, and you see lyrics up there because of course, I mean, people can't read music anymore and we, we expect very little of them in terms of their musical participation. Um, but you see lyrics and things that are up there and then you see a little like a little line at the very beginning of the song that notes the, the artist, the publishing company who owns the publishing rights for that song. Um, you'll, you'll see that up there and then you'll, you'll see CCLI, a CCLI license number. Um, this is a requirement that CCLI places on churches as part of the licensing agreement to say, okay, if, you, if you're going to have access to the catalog of, of songs, which of course is every praise and worship song now, is, is, goes through CCLI, is licensed through CCLI for, for churches, um, you need to put up the, before the song, any, or any material, I should say, any materials you put out that, that are printed or, or visual representations of the, the song itself, so the lyrics or the, or the notation or whatever, needs to have the, the publishing, the publisher of that song listed and your CCLI license at any given time. That way everybody knows that you've, you've legitimately secured the rights to use this. Um, such a thing does not exist in the, in the private sector. In the, in, the, in the secular sector, at least not the same way. So the way this works without going into too much detail, without, without over, you know, overboring you with minutia, 
uh, any song that's written has a copyright, um, a composition copyright. So this is a copyright that covers the unique combination of notes and rhythms and chords and melodies and words that, that make that song that song. Um, and that, that is, that is a composition copyright that is, it's, it's held by the songwriter. Whoever writes the song holds that copyright. They have, they have 100% of that copyright when the song is first created. Um, now if they use a publishing company, which of course most big artists do, a publishing company to distribute that song and, and, and try to get it around basically to, to exploit that song. I'm not saying that in the negative sense, but to sell the song, so to speak, to push it around. Generally speaking, the publishing house is granted 50% of the composition copyright. So, so when, when your church plays a song, when your church plays a song, it has to get permission to use that song, to, to pr- publicly perform that song. They have to get permission to do that. And the permission is granted by whoever owns the composition copyright. And that is generally speaking, 50% the songwriter and 50% the publishing company. Um, now, of course, if there are multiple songwriters, they may have a different agreement on who owns what percent of the, of the composition. You know, it, it can all be different. But let's just say, for instance, that, that, that on this song we're talking about, This Is Our God by Phil Wickham, that there are four songwriters on this song. Phil Wickham, Stephen Furtick, a couple other dudes. I think that's what it was. I don't know. This is very typical in CCM for some reason. One guy apparently can't write a song by himself. Um, but So let, let's just say this is the case. And then let's just say that, that, that um, Elevation Publishing says, okay, Phil, we're, we're going to push your song. You know, if, if you publish, if you let us uh, publish your song... You, you let us publish this and maybe he had no maybe he had no uh, uh, way to claim otherwise if he had Stephen Furtick as one of the songwriters but they would say okay Elevation Publishing has 50% of the publishing and the other 50% is split among the um, among the other co- uh, songwriters and so Phil, Phil Wickham would wind up with uh, what 12.5% of, of the song um, of, of whatever revenue is generated through exploiting the copyright. Now, one of the ways that that copyright is exploited is through CCLI. So CCLI and, and churches that have, uh, that work with CCLI, which is almost all of them at this point, uh, <clears throat> they agree to, they, they basically track and report to CCLI what they play, what songs are played in their, in their Sunday morning services, what songs are played in, you know, their youth group service, wherever they're, where, wherever they're doing, worship using these songs, they report back to CCLI and then CCLI pays, um, they pay out of the revenue, of course, generated from CCLI subscriptions and licensing and all this kind of stuff. They pay the artist, they pay the, the songwriter, um, that, you know, they, they pay them royalties based off of those plays. So the goal is to get the song, um, that's been written by Phil Wickham and, and company here into as many churches as possible. So every every worship pastor that decides I'm going to program this Phil Wickham song is putting money in the pockets of Phil Wickham. They're putting money in the pockets of Stephen Furtick. They're putting money in the pockets of Elevation, um, Elevation Publishing, and of course by extension and, and cooperation, Elevation Music and Elevation Church and all of this. That that there. That's where the that's how the money winds up getting there. Now there there are other there's another copyright associated in music um, for this for a sound recording of a song, um, which is 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 different. Like when you play this this Phil Wickham song at your church, 
um, you're not using the Phil Wickham recorded version of the song. Um, you're using the composition, uh, Phil Wickham and, and company's composition, but you're not using the sound recording. So sound recording copyrights are different, and they're generally owned by uh, the recording artist and or the record label that is paid for the recording of that song, and now is tasked with exploiting the recording itself. And these are, these are of course, the recording and the composition copyrights are related, but they're not the same. Um, as an example, a, once, once a composition is recorded and distributed, as, as a record by, by anybody, whether it's the, the original artist or anybody that they allow to record uh, their composition. Once that happens, any artist can make a record of that composition as long as they pay um, the royalties to the copyright, to the composition copyright holder. It's, it's, a, um, it's a licensing rate that is set by the, by the, by the government. Um, and it's it, it's paid from the this the uh, the new artist here. It's 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 it would be called a mechanical license, even though mostly these songs aren't being mechanically reproduced like on records and things like that anymore. Um, it's still called a mechanical royalty, and it's paid from the the artist whoever decides to record the song to the copyright owner um, of the composition at a specific rate per. Um, per mechanical copy um, in, in terms of streaming or in terms of on like digital song sales there's still a mechanical royalty generated um, I don't know what the calculation is off the top of my head but that, that's kind of how it works and so the, the purpose of you know, like Phil Wickham going on Fox News to play his song and touring around the country is uh, it's several fold but 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 the main revenue stream is CCLI. The main revenue stream is how many churches can we get to play this song? And when, and, oh, it, well, and, and it's how many churches can we get to play this song? Not only because CCLI um, provides royalties when the song is performed in a church worship service, but also any, any other materials that that church purchases for the purpose of playing that song also come into play. So some of you may be may be familiar with uh, websites like uh, praisecharts.com um, and, and, and other similar sites that basically sell packaged versions of these songs for Sunday morning worship. And uh, when I say a packaged version, you would go to this website to purchase um, the song in the in the format that your band or your musicians at church need need um, in order to perform the song. So you, you go to praisecharts.com and you then you look up "This Is Our God" by Phil Wickham, and it is going to have uh, it's going to have an arrangement, uh, note, a notation arrangement, and usually some sort of an orchestration that is probably beyond what actually was on the record. But you know, if you have an orchestra, you have you know violin players and, and flute players and um, and all these kinds of things, instrumentalists, brass players, and whatnot, there'll be parts on there for them to play while your praise band plays This Is Our God by Phil Wickham. Um, there'll be uh, chord charts on there. There'll be... Uh, and, and you'll be able to get these in, in all sorts of different keys. So you don't have to necessarily be able to sing like Phil Wickham if, if what he's singing is too high or something. You can just buy the song um, transposed down a few, a few steps. 
so that it fits with whatever vocalist you're planning on singing this or your congregation or whatever um, you can you can buy you can buy the arrangement um, transposed and that's basically the same song um, but starting on lower notes for those of you that aren't musicians and don't know what that means um, you can also get you'll also be able to get what they call uh, stems or backing tracks a lot of praise bands in fact the overwhelming majority of contemporary praise bands at this point use use click tracks and backing tracks when they play the songs so you if you see players playing with headphones in earpieces in um, yes that can be for monitoring so they can hear themselves play and hear the other musicians play but it's also it also allows um, a sound technician or whatever to feed in extra information into their ears that isn't necessarily heard by an audience or a congregation. And so so when you go to praise praise charts or praise tracks.com, whatever these sites are, and buy these things, you 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 pay a certain amount of money depending on the number of printed copies you need of music and what other assets you want. Um, but you can you can basically buy backing tracks pre-recorded backing tracks for every single component of the recording of that song to make your own extra mix. So let's just say, I, I want my song to sound just like the Phil Wickham recording. So I go on that website and I buy the I buy the Phil Wickham, uh, This Is Our God, in the original key, the recorded key, and I buy the whole package of, of backing tracks. And then I go back to my computer and I say, okay, well, I have a bass player and I have a, an acoustic guitar player, but I don't have an electric guitar player, and I don't have a lot of backing praise singers and stuff, so I'm going to take the pre-recorded praise singers and the pre-recorded electric guitar and the pre-recorded um, percussion tracks and the pre-recorded synthesizers and all this kind of stuff, and I'll make a special backing track just for my church. And then you play, your band plays along with that on Sunday morning to recreate the same um, sound, the same arrangement, the same mix as the, as the Phil Wickham recording that the people heard on K-Love the day before on the radio. This, this is how it's done these days. And um, from a production standpoint, I mean, I, I certainly could take issue with you know, that being lame in some ways. You know, and I, by the way, I say this as somebody who has... Who has um, industry experience doing th this exact kind of production paradigm. Like I, I have uh, produced my own music and and other cover music as backing tracks and production assets, lighting tracks, uh, video assets, you name it, um, that have been performed in front of you know tens of thousands of people. So I, I, I do know what I'm talking about here. Again, for those of you that, that may not know, my background is in music industry officially you know as far as as far as my formal education but also my professional experience is very much in the music industry so you know I'm I'm basically telling you some inside baseball stuff that is just I mean it's the way that it is and I don't I don't have any qualms about telling you like I'm you know giving them some sort of a secret I don't this isn't the same as a magician telling you the trick to cutting a woman in half or something this is this is common knowledge uh, in in mu the music industry especially in live performance um, but but this is what happens on Sunday mornings at most churches. Now, those of you that have read any theological song reviews on protestia.com will know that my, my, my bigger issue, I mean, the production thing is one thing. And yeah, I mean, it has its own series of pitfalls and its own series, you know, its own set of things that I think are, you know, let's just say not ideal in terms of the way that that's done. 
but my main my main beef has always been with the theological content of the music itself. Like I I don't have any sort of uh, you know moral dilemma with somebody using um, a a modern production paradigm on a theologically solid old hymn if that's if that's what they they believe uh, is the right thing to do for their church. But the problem is that with with the rapid fire novelty driven music industry bent that goes on in in Christian contemporary music and worship music, it's not just it's not just the music itself that's affected. It's not just saying we're going to use modern production techniques and it's not just saying we're going to create um you know, kind of cookie cutter arrangements, cookie cutter instrumentation, uh, cookie cutter chord structures and melodies and um, formula, you know, musical formulations. I mean, there's a reason that all these songs sound the same, folks. It's not, it's not a coincidence. It's because if it's not broke, don't fix it. And people will continue to buy and consume the same song sold to them over and over and over and over again, um, as long as it's still producing the same results. Um, it, but it's not just that the doctrine within the songs such that we can identify it because some of them I would argue we can barely identify what they're saying theologically um, but that also suffers and it suffers for the same reason this is the, the same reason that these songwriters and arrangers and and groups and things like this are selling the same music over and over and over and over and they are they, they also know that in order to get this song into as many churches as possible, that they don't particularly care what that church teaches doctrinally or what they believe or anything like that. The goal is to get the song in there. And so, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know, okay, how, how can we get our worship song into as many different um, Christian denominations and, and churches and practices as possible? Well, we make it as generic as possible. We, we, we water it down to the point where um, nobody would have any idea what our doctrinal um, bent is other than we love Jesus and Jesus loves us. One of the, one of the most interesting um, revelations from the research on the last 10 years of popular worship music, one of the most interesting parts of it were how few of the songs are actually really doctrinally talking about Jesus or salvation versus how many of the songs are talking about um, God doing stuff for me and God bas- basically being my genie in a bottle that can um, you know, solve whatever generic life problems this song may be alluding to. If, again, if you've read the theological song reviews at Protestia, you'll, you'll notice that I take a lot of issue. It's one of the categories, in fact, is doctrinal specificity. Doctrinal specificity is a category and focus is a category because so many modern songs rhetorically um, are focused on the worshiper rather than God. The, you know, God is basically, in a lot of these songs, God is basically validated. He's basically worthy of being worshipped. Um, because he's doing stuff for me or because I feel the right way about him. Um, and and that, is, that is not, historically speaking, that's not Christian worship. And Christian worship is much more about the, the awe and wonder of God. And, you know, the fact that the worshiper, by, by comparison, is, is small. It's not that we're irrelevant or something like that. I mean, obviously... Um, you know, God sent Jesus to save us because he loves us that much. So, you know, we can't say it on, on the one hand, um, 
that we're that, that a, we focus on ourselves too much because but we shouldn't because we're irrelevant. It's not that's not why. It's because we're there to worship God. We're not we're we're not there to uh, validate ourselves emotionally. And yet, what you'll find time and time again, and I would challenge anybody to go through any of these songs, any of these top twenty-five songs that the the researchers uh, noted were the most popular. Go through them and note carefully where the focus is. You know, note that note you know how how much God is basically um, seen in exclusively human terms. Um, how many of these songs talk about God not failing or something like that as if there's another option, as if it was possible he would ever fail? Um, how much they, they graft uh, human, um, human frailty onto God, and yet God is validated and worthy to be worshipped um, because I say he is. That's a lot of the songs are framed that way, and that's, it's not a coincidence because they come out of these church movements that are their prosperity gospel, their man-centered, um, their, their word of faith, very, uh, very Pentecostal and charismatic, very, um, led by the quote unquote spirit, which I would argue is more led by my own emotions. When you actually, when you actually look at, um, the actual framework of these songs, they're very man-centered and that is a great way. I mean, any, any good marketer will tell you that is a great way to sell something. That is the best way to sell something. I, I, I say this as a salesperson, as someone who's done sales, um, retail sales to some degree for the last 20 years of my life, I can tell you this is the, this is the way. This is how this is done. Um, you get somebody focused on themselves, talking about themselves, talking about their situation, and then um, you remind them or you show them how the product that you want to sell fits in with their, their personal desires and their needs. Um, and that's exactly what's being done, um, to sell these songs. If you want your song to, to be on Caleb, if you want your song to be the, the next, um, fleeting of course, but the next modern worship song, um, this is how you do it. You want to make sure the song is theologically generic enough that anybody from any Christian tradition or sometimes no Christian tradition at all can still see themselves and read themselves in between the lines of the song. So you, you, you never find these songs um, talking about the worshiper being particularly culpable for their own sin. Instead, sin is, sin is seen as some sort of a, um, you know, an analogy to, uh, you know, being robbed or being enslaved. It's not your, it's never your fault. Of course, we know from Scripture that we are both the we're both the man that got robbed and and beaten and mugged on the side of the road, and the robber, beater, and mugger. We're, we're both of those things. Yes, there in 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 a sense, um, sin is a curse, and it is something that we are um, um, struggling with, and something that that whether we like it or not, we're sinners. We we didn't really have we didn't have a choice in the matter, and yet if we did have a choice, we would still sin. We're still culpable for our own sin. We're still responsible for um, our inability to keep to keep God's perfect and holy standard. But these songs will never talk about that. You will you you will never have the finger pointed at you. And and if you if you read the text of old hymns um, and and the old classics of the faith, they they make no bones about the fact that it's our fault. You know we are we are the wretched sinner. 
you know, we did this. We're responsible. We're the rebels against God. Modern praise and worship music likes to categorize that as something that was just happenstance. It's not really your fault. It's like, you know, it's like getting cancer or something. And, and thank God uh, that Jesus is here to rid you of your cancer. That wasn't really your fault anyway, but, you know, it's, it, and, and it's generic enough with, with terms like freedom and, and uh, you know, all of these things. And, and um, you know, my, the, my, my future and my satisfaction and my this and my that and me, me, me. That's how all this is characterized. And... So, I mean, it's no surprise that the top 25 songs are the top 25 songs, but I mean, I hope I'm giving you a little bit of insight into how the, how this industry works, how this is done, why it's the way that it is. And frankly, as long as there is money behind it, and, you know, like people seem to think that, you know, oh, Elevation Worship or, or Hillsong or whatever is, um, is, is using the music to push bad doctrine into churches because they, they don't care what your church believes. I, I mean, I, I want to be clear about this. I know, and I've probably been guilty of saying this from time to time, that this is some sort of an avenue for Bethel or for, um, you know, North Point or Gateway Worship, whoever it is, whatever, whatever big worship, uh, you know, sort of industry church machine that we're talking about, we like to talk about it like, well, they, the, the reason that, um, that they are, uh, you know, the reason they're doing what they're doing is to push bad doctrine into your church. Like somehow Elevation Church um, wants to change your normally conservative and solid Baptist church into a, into a wishy-washy, uh, you know, mega church kind of a thing. It's like, no, no that's, a, that's a symptom. That's certainly a result, very, you know. But, but the bad doctrine, the bad doctrine is, um, the, bad, the bad doctrine goes hand in hand with, the, the, the marketing methodology. You've seen a whole bunch of uh, articles on Protestia recently about Hillsong's money. Um, I mean, just the, the, the millions and millions and millions of dollars flowing into Hillsong as an organization and how much they were, you know, living like kings and, I mean, blowing money on all sorts of nonsensical stuff and, you know, houses and cars and, I mean, very much living living like kings over there on that kind of money. That's, that's the purpose. That's the purpose. The false doctrine, the false doctrine is used, is useful to them because it brings in the money. You know, itching, scratching, itching ears brings in the money. And so, yeah, I mean, this kind of stuff will have a detrimental effect on the, the theological fidelity of your church because it's theologically, uh, man-centered and sometimes overtly false, but at the very least has the focus in totally the wrong place. Um, that's not because these movements are trying to take over your, your little Baptist church. It's because they're trying to get your money. That's, that, that really is, I mean, I, I'd like to say that it's more complicated than that, but that's exactly what it is. As the old saying goes, follow the money. And that's, that's, that's how this industry works. And I mean, you should be, you should be keeping this stuff out of your church for the purpose of theological fidelity and to not be sending money to false churches and false movements and purveyors of false gospels. Obviously, I mean, that's, you know, once you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And then at that point, you're compromising right along with him. If you don't change, you know, make an overt change, go right back to hymns. 
right back to hymns that are not sending money to some place that you don't need to be sending money to. Um, which, 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 by the way, is is one of the reasons that uh, these churches push what they push instead of hymns because there's no money in singing hymns. Like if, aside from purchasing the written music because somebody's paid for their work writing down the arrangement and all that, um, nobody gets a dime when you sing How Great Thou Art. Nobody gets any money at all. And that's a good thing. I say this as somebody who is um, knowledgeable and experienced in the music industry and knows how to generate money in the music industry and who doesn't think that's a bad thing in and of itself. It is appropriate that that people are paid for their copyrights. I, I, I don't find any problem with that at all. And yet, the church is someplace special. It's different. It shouldn't be subject to these market forces that are going to um, twist and pervert orderly Christian worship, which just shouldn't be subject to that, but it is. And so, I mean, the next time that you're listening to a by-the-numbers, cookie-cutter worship song, like, This Is Our God by Phil Wickham, and you're like, yeah, I really like this. Well, yeah, because they designed it that way. It's designed... You really like it for the same reason that you like, um, you know, a quarter pounder with cheese. Uh, you know, it's junk food. It's not good for you, but you like it because they've designed it that way. It's been designed to appeal to your senses. We should expect more. We should expect more from what, from the worship that we offer to the Lord though. Right. I mean, to take this song, to take this, this, this Phil Wickham tune as an example, he says that the, the very beginning, the very first verse says something like, um, and it's off the top of my head, so forgive me if I don't get it quite right, but he says something like, remember those giants we called sin and shame. That's the first line of the song. Remember those giants we called sin and shame. And it's, it's like, no, it's actually, biblically speaking, it's, it's, it's the sin and shame that you're calling a giant. So the abstraction there, the abstraction, and you'll see this in a ton of worship songs. I realize I'm chasing a rabbit here at the end of the podcast, but the abstraction um, is purposeful. The abstraction is, it, it infantilizes the worshiper. It infantilizes, it, it's it's basically like saying, hey, we don't think that we can, um, we, we don't think you're going to tolerate any conversation about sin and shame particularly. No, they're going to be external factors, and because we can't really say that they're external factors while still calling them sin and shame, because the Bible very clearly places the blame for that on you, we're going to call them giants. We're going to, we're going to make this abstract for no reason at all. There's no artistic reason that you need to call sin and shame giants. And yet, in, 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 in really, instead of, again, he's doing it backwards. He says that it's sin and shame, but they're actually giants. It's like, no, no, no. you're calling them giants. They're actually sin and shame. So why the abstraction? Well, because the abstraction takes the responsibility off of the worshiper. It makes you not responsible. I mean, how, how much more peacefully and emotionally and, and whatnot can you worship when, when you realize that you're not at fault for anything? You know, the blame is never pointed on you. There's, there's no contrition here. There's no contrition. It's, there, there's no um, humility and, and, and therefore awe and wonder in the presence of the Almighty God, um, we want to tell these people that it's not really your fault. And we want to be so, so doctrinally nonspecific that anybody could sing, sing this song. And like aside from the name Jesus being used in some of these songs, if you replace Jesus, um, 
know, with God or Yahweh or some other term, um, a, a vast majority of the world's religions could probably sing this song with no problem at all. There are no doctrinal specifics that would that would turn off a, 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 a practicing Jew or you know a, a, a Mormon or a Roman Catholic or whatever. There's nothing orthodox about them. Particularly, they're generic, and that's the purpose. Get them in as many churches as possible. It is an industry. It is an industry that feeds the larger church movement. It feeds the largesse of the people at the top and the lifestyles that they want to live. The lifestyles of the rich and famous lived by people like Bobby and and uh, Brian Houston. Um, and that's just that's what. It, follow the money, and you'll know why this stuff is the way that it is. Um, and yet, the doctrine is still bad, and you still need to to protect your church from the bad doctrine. You know above and beyond even how uh, distasteful and sinful it is to, to make an industry out of watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyway, I, I think I've ranted uh, long enough about this. Thank you for listening to the Bully Pew Podcast brought to you by Protestia.com. Stay tuned to Protestia for all the latest in polemics and discernment news. We will be in, uh, in touch soon. Have a good rest, rest of your week and a good weekend. Go to church on Sunday and worship God with the saints. Obey, um, keep the faith, and uh, keep keep uh, studying Scripture and praying. And um, yeah, I mean, God, God, God has promised to work all of these things for the good of those who are called according to His purpose, and that's you and me. And um, we are 100% confident He will do just that. We'll see you next time. As always, semper reformanda. 